Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Uh, first off, wanted to thank everybody once again for your continued patience. The last couple of weeks have been very busy uh, for me, um, finishing my final paper and getting back into the swing of working, uh, not to mention just what with the holidays, trying to schedule stuff with my co-hosts, my no good co-hosts um, has been uh, difficult, but uh, we're, we're back on track now. Uh, just in time for for the holidays, so we I, I like to view these episodes as as little presents to you, the listener. Uh, but first, uh, b- before we we get into the topic uh, proper, um, want to tell you about some of the stuff going on on the website right now. First off, uh, Bob Connolly has written a couple of new blogs. The first is about one of his favorite Christmas movies, which is the uh, the Man Who Came to Dinner. Uh, from the 1940s. Uh, I don't know if I consider it a Christmas movie, but it takes place around Christmas. And so he wrote about that. Uh, He also wrote a review of Nocturnal Animals, which I still have not seen. And I'm actually reluctant to see just based on some of the reviews. And just like, I'm sure it's marvelous, but I'm also, I feel like it's going to make me feel bad. Um, I wrote a review of Rogue One, a Star Wars story, which I think is very good and I highly recommend. just in time for Christmas, uh, Reed and Nathan on the fear of God are talking about Joel Edgerton's film, the gift. It's not a Christmas movie. Uh, and then lastly, uh, the second episode of salty cinema hosted by Jacob Kinberg has posted in which he discuss in which he talks to, uh, Mark Joseph, who is a producer and a, an author and a film marketing specialist who worked on a number of films, including the passion of the Christ. So those are all available at more than one lesson, Dot com And uh, yeah, I'd really appreciate you checking those out. Lots of good stuff to read, a lot of, a lot of good stuff to listen to. Okay, now, about that paper that I was writing, that is the subject of today's episode. And my paper was about the emergence of what I call Christian social drama as a new genre. And we'll discuss more of what that means in a moment. But first, I need to bring in my co-host, Josh Long. Josh, how you doing? Hello, everyone. That doesn't answer my question. How you doing? Good to see you, too. Josh? I was thinking of uh, doing like a, like, a, like a slapping sound with uh, my hands and make it seem like I'm abusive to you. Yeah, that'd be fine. But uh, I like to keep it just the verbal abuse. Okay, that's... Yeah, yeah. You cretin. You just gotta, you gotta stay on brand. Exactly. I don't want people to think like, well, Tyler's a total monster to his (laughs) co-host. But, uh, okay. So, so you read my paper and you, you did help inform my paper as well. Um, because when the time came for me to bounce some of my ideas off of someone, I realized that nobody else (laughs) has seen the Christian movies that I have seen. Uh, Some have seen like, oh, they saw Fireproof and then someone saw God's Not Dead, but nobody had seen all of them Mm. except my my poor co-host, Josh. That's Uh, me. And even then I've seen more uh, because I saw Heaven is for Real and I saw Miracles from Heaven. Uh, and then not every Christian film that we saw and talked about on the show fit into what I am talking about. Saving True. Christmas does not fit into it, oh, nor does Risen, and I don't think Woodlawn does either. Saving Christmas is up on – it's either like 
Netflix or Amazon Prime or one of those things, and I was scanning past it the other day, and a chill went down my spine. <laughs> but didn't you kind of want to watch it and get in the mood for Christmas? No. no. <laughs> so, okay. So already we have fallen into our standard uh, uh, tone of mocking Christian film. And let's go ahead and start there. So uh, this paper that I wrote, there's, I guess, sort of a plea in it that people approaching Christian film, specifically what I call Christian social drama, which I'll define in a moment, that people should try to take it seriously as a movie genre, which is, you know, as I'm writing the paper, making that legitimate plea, this is not one of those situations where I wrote a paper that I don't believe, but I, (laughs) but I, I'm writing it because I can fill the pages or wrote the plea sarcastically. Right. Yeah. There's like an asterisk, uh, next to a bunch of them, uh, a bunch of the paragraphs. Um, this is something that I actually do believe the more I started writing about it. And yet I don't like these movies. And so it's weird to, to make the argument that they should be taken seriously, even if I don't enjoy them Mm -hmm. and I openly mock them. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's kind of where I find myself now as I, as I talk about this, because I'm not arguing that these are good movies, but then what is a good movie when we're thinking in terms of genre? Mm -hmm. And so in order to even start to talk about this, I think we first need to talk about what a genre is. A lot of people seem to think that when I say genre, I'm talking about categorization, Mm -hmm. you know, like in the old days of video stores and now yeah. on Netflix, like drama which story or which yeah. part of the story do you find yeah. it in drama, comedy, classics, foreign stuff like that. Comedy is not a genre. Drama is not a genre. Foreign is not a genre. Um, an argument could be made that, that action is not a genre nor thriller. Um, a, a film genre. And then I, myself, uh, David and I regularly argue that musicals are not a genre. Um, which is something that I, uh, we get a lot of blowback on and then we, uh, express our, uh, opinions more in depth. And the person often says, you know what? I think you might've convinced me. <laughs> so, uh, so let's, let's delve into first what a genre is. Uh, and I'll throw it to you. Cause I think, you know what I'm talking about when I say genre. So how would you define, and let's stick with film. How would you define the term genre, uh, in terms of film? Um, it, it tends to refer to films that follow a certain, uh, expected set of rules. Um, and I guess I use the term term rules loosely cause that can apply to anything from, uh, types of characters that appear certain set pieces or moments that appear, uh, certain characters, um, uh, and, and generally a, uh, a, a similar worldview. Right. That combined with, uh, stylistic choices and what is called iconography. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's give a couple of very clear cut examples. And I'd say the two most clear cut are Westerns and film noir. Um, I was going to say horror, but horror, I think maybe it, it is a genre, but at this point, there are so many subgenres of horror. Yeah, it's kind of you know, like kind of messy. 
you can't really compare Jaws to Night of the Living Dead. Right. You can compare creature features and you can compare zombie movies mm-hmm. and you can compare slasher films. Like horror, it's, I don't know, but that's the thing is the subgenres are absolutely subgenres. Like yeah. zombie movies, there are things that will always be there. Yeah. Uh, certainly a sense of fatalism. Yeah. Uh, but then also the idea that he, the living humans will turn on each other. Yeah. That always happens. It's yeah. a staple of the genre. Well, I think that's also part of a result of a horror enduring for as long as it does, mm-hmm. because it, I think an argument could be made that eventually all genres have to break down when someone, some filmmaker starts to challenge the preconceptions that we have and the expectations that we have from a genre yeah. and say, what if it didn't do all the things that you expect it to do, which is, I think why horror has grown all those subgenres. I think it hasn't happened with Western because the Western hasn't endured the way that horror films have. Right. You, which is why you will sometimes get the term revisionist. Right. Yeah. Uh, Same with get, film noir. Yeah. So yeah. Cause you get like neo noir revisionist Western, whereas yeah. horror, because it's, it tends to deal more with feelings, feelings of dread and fatalism and just fear in general. Well, those are universal. And what's more is with the unintended watch out. Uh, whereas, uh, and that's the thing is with horror, the loosening of, uh, Hollywood standards, as far as what you can feature mm-hmm. in a movie, uh, really, really opened a Pandora's uh, box. There. Yeah. It really allowed horror to branch out into mm-hmm. other things. Um, you know, suddenly yeah, you made reference to like the <coughs> universal horror movies. Um, suddenly Frankenstein, Dracula and, uh, the Wolfman and all those, um, yes, those are, those are still around, but now horror could be seen as things that are truly horrific, like images that are horrific. I think with Frankenstein, you have a concept that is horrific, which mm-hmm. is a, uh, a human being has been brought back to life from the dead or, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, uh, uh, this eternal being is, is feasting on the blood of humans. Uh, you know, those are horrific concepts. Whereas I think once, uh, once the, the Hayes code was kind of put out and it became about a rating system and special effects got better and makeup got better. Um, I think you, uh, suddenly horrific imagery, you know, was what it was about. So you see stuff like night of the living dead, Texas chainsaw massacre, the thing, mm-hmm. um, where it's just like, Oh my gosh, this is, I can't even believe what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I think, I think that actually has allowed, and also just honestly, the everyday horror that we see in life. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, images of like terrorism, uh, school shootings, like the you know, there's always going to be horror in the lives that we live. Yeah. Whereas there's not a lot of frontiers left, so the <laughs> Western uh, isn't super relevant to our lives. The film noir probably could be, but at the same time, the cynicism of film noir has sort of just been absorbed into larger culture, certainly by the time the 60s and 70s rolled around. And so suddenly these movies seem almost quaint in their fatalism. Uh, They don't go nearly far enough. Hmm. Uh, Whereas horror, I think, is adaptable. And that's where you that's why I think it is endured. I think you're right. Um, But yeah, let's let's stick from an uh, iconography standpoint. Let's stick with uh, Western and film noir. 
you know, when I ask you, the listener, what do you think of when you think of Westerns? Now, you'll probably think of a certain stark quality uh, as far as, you know, morally, mm -hmm. uh, but also visually. You'll, you're not going to think of cities. You're going to think of towns, you know, the plains, deserts, mountains. Uh, you'll think of horses, cowboy hats, swinging saloon doors, tumbleweeds, revolvers, high noon, uh, that sort of thing. Like that's those are all visual elements that let you know you are in the midst of a Western. Um, and Westerns don't, ha the, the the stories don't have to take place at a certain time um, because there are movies like No Country for Old Men, which I'm not sure I'd say it's a full-on Western, but it's pretty close. Mm -hmm. You have cowboy hats, revolvers, deserts, yeah. uh, and a certain stark quality. Um, so, uh, and then film noir, I'd say even more so. You've got fedoras, trench coats, you have guns again, you've got like femme fatales, femme fatales, you have femmes fatales. Oh, thank me. you. Um, hards, Lux dame, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, and then, you know, you have offices there, there you mostly do think of a city, mm -hmm. uh, and you think of the naked city or the, that's right. Uh, isn't that nor? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, you think of shadows, you think of Venetian blinds because the, the shadow of, of a Venetian blind on somebody's face makes it looks like they're in, in prison yep. with uh, horizontal bars instead of uh, vertical. But um, so those are now obviously like we're talking about superficial things. We're talking about stylistic things, but also film noir, it can't end. Hopefully the nature of it is that like, even if the care, the main character comes out ahead like mm -hmm. in Maltese Falcon. Well, he's still sending somebody that he does care about to possibly be uh, hanged. Yeah. Um, and he still, and, and he's left alone. And the, the, the valuable treasure that all of these characters are going after turns out to be, be nothing. false, you yeah. know, which is a nice little metaphor for the American dream. One could say, uh, so even when it turns out, well, it doesn't turn out well, the character is no further ahead yeah. than he was before. And in fact is a little bit behind cause his partner has been killed and all these <laughs> other things. So, um, so those are, you know, those are definite genres. Uh, and if a film claims to be noir, but it doesn't feature, those things, uh, then one can make the argument that it's not noir. Mm -hmm. Um, now there are, of course there are subsets of, of noir. There's like the, the detective, but then there's also the everyday guy pulled into something like, mm -hmm. uh, postman's postman always rings twice or double indemnity. And you'll find a lot more of that these days. You don't find a lot of detectives anymore, but if you see a modern noir where just a regular person gets pulled into a thriller element, often by a woman or the promise of wealth, or just elevating his situation in life already, we're kind of into noir territory. Yeah. Um, but anyway, and then at the same time, something like Chinatown, which does have fedoras and all that sort of thing, but it takes place mostly uh, during the day. There's not mm -hmm. a lot of shadows. That's a neo-noir element visually. But again, it's still the, the story is absolutely. Yeah, uh, it's the same noir. type of world and the same type of morals. So the reason that we spend as much time talking about genre as we did is because it's important to recognize when a film fits into a certain genre because when it does, you have to adapt your way of thinking. You can't go into a film noir angry that it's not more hopeful. 
you can't go into a Western upset that they're not singing. <laughs> you know, like it's just, and we laugh at that. We laugh at the idea that, yeah, that's ridiculous. Why would you ever expect that? Right. Why would you ever expect that? Mm -hmm. So it's with that in mind that I want to talk about the Christian social drama. Now, uh, this was actually, I'll go all the way back to, um, the, uh, the visitation day to UCLA, mm -hmm. uh, where I went with a lot of, uh, fellow students. And I went as, as a function of like, Oh, I'm going to visit the school that I will be attending. I've been accepted and now I'm going to go and check it out. <clears throat> Turns out that the nature of that day was these are all people that have been accepted. And then they're going to kind of scope things out and decide if they want to go me. Oh. I only applied to one place. <laughs> so it was just like, Hey, neat. Um, but you know, they go around you go around and you see, you talk to like different professors and that sort of thing. And they talk about all the different things they've been working on. Try and me, impress you. Yeah. And part of me is like, you made your sale. Cause again, <laughs> I didn't know what it was for. Uh, but there was one instance where, uh, a professor asked, uh, you know, does anybody have any questions? And I had one, there was one question on my mind and I said, what is something that no one else has talked about in, in academia? And she said, oh, that's, um, hmm, that's a good question. She's like, I mean, a lot of stuff has been talked about a lot, you know, but there's always a, you know, and she wound up talking more about like the internet and internet content and the effect that the internet has had on, uh, TV, you know, existing media like TV and film. It's like, but even then I feel like in 2016, that's probably been talked about a fair amount. Yeah. And so. But that in mind, it's just this idea of like, what, you know, what can I, what am I uniquely qualified to talk about? Um, and this is it. Uh, I am uniquely qualified to talk about Christian film because when it comes right down to it, the vast majority of film nerds, film critics, film academics, they do not take these movies seriously. Mm-hmm they don't think about them at all. Hmm. You know, it's like that line from Casablanca where Peter Lorre <clears throat> asks, uh, Humphrey Bogart, like you despise me, don't you? And he says, if I gave you any thought, I would <laughs> like the movies are seen as such a joke that a lot of people don't even waste their time with them. Yeah. And again, you and I have spent years criticizing these movies and often dismissing them, but we've not probably talked about these movies more than anyone has talked about these movies, maybe in the world. That's not true because there are people that enjoy them. Uh, there are, but I don't think they've spent as much time talking about that them. is true. We, uh, we usually two hours tends to be our, our, uh, our minimum, uh, mm -hmm. episode length for these films. Um, but that's the thing is the reason that we talk so much about them is because, we are Christians that are film fans. And I think film fans that aren't Christian are willing to, are just going to dismiss them outright because they're not for them. And then Christians that aren't film people are just going to uh, not, not a guarantee, but they just like them and accept them and then they move on. But I think because we fall into that very specific, you know, demographic, I think we probably do think more about them than, most people. Yeah. Because of their films that are ostensibly for us and we're yeah. people who analyze and, uh, and, uh, approach films with a critical eye, then that leaves us in a position where we have to do that. And the critical eye towards film 
the non-Christian critical eye towards these types of films is overwhelmingly harsh. And having talked about them for years now, we do find ourselves in the position of, and, and especially somebody like an Alex Kendrick, we've, we've talked about three of his films. Now, the first one you weren't there for is me and Nathan talking about Fireproof. Mm-hmm. But you saw Fireproof. Twice. Twice? Yeah. Why? I, uh, for some, I had to talk about it on the show. I'm not even joking. I think it was your fault for some reason. I, <laughs> I think I had seen it for some other reason. And then like you and Jason were going to be watching it. Yeah. And I had already seen it, but was going to watch it again. Yeah, that's right. Jason, Adam and I, I believe he had just moved here Yeah, and we were going like, to LA. Yeah. And we were going to watch it. And you were dropping something off at my house. And I said, Hey, we're going to watch uh, fireproof and eat pizza. You want to, you want to stay? And you're, like, the well, pizza and you're like, well, pizza. Yeah. Cause at the time I believe you weren't eating a lot and that you were very been. skinny. So, uh, okay. So it's not entirely your fault, but it's mostly yeah. pizza's fault. Yeah. It's, uh, you're sort of like Winnie the Pooh. Like you're, oh, yeah. you're grumbly and you're tumbly and you decide, Oh, well, if I, if I have to deal with two hours of fireproof in order to eat this little Caesar's pizza that I can get for $5. Most people make their decisions up here in the brain area. <laughs> not so much for me. So, um, but yeah, uh, so somebody like an Alex Kendrick who we've gotten to see as a filmmaker grow, uh, or in some cases not grow over the last few years, you and I are in a unique position to comment on that, you know, and and that's a lot of what we've spent our time doing when we talk about these films is how they've improved, where they where there's room for improvement and the things that they're exploring. And so and in that way, uh, not to elevate us or anything like that, but that is exactly how film noir was discovered as a genre is mm. the critics were watching these films. Now, in this case, it was French critics who didn't have access to American film during the war and then suddenly got just this flood of them after the war. <laughs> so they watched they watched a bunch of these American crime movies uh, all at once. And so when you see them like concentrated like that, you definitely are just like, oh my gosh, there's a huge, there's a bunch of commonality here. Yeah. And so, uh, and we didn't necessarily watch them like that, but because I f- seem to feel some instinct to talk about the, the, the higher profile films on this show, it put us in a unique position to watch the films individually and then also notice larger trends. Sure. So having now set that out, um, I decided for my text and context class when we were going to, we had to do a research paper, um, that mine was going to be about Christian film in general. And then it, didn't take me long to think about like, well, maybe I should talk about it as a genre because I was floating it as an episode idea for a while. So like yeah. it was in the back of my mind yeah, you'd already. Um, and the problem with that is that there's not a whole lot of research to be found on Christian film. Mm-hmm. There's research to be found on Christian attitudes towards film. There's a book on my table right here called media culture and the religious right. But that was written in nine. That was published in 1998. Hmm. That's yeah. Things have changed. Things have changed. And so, um, so the academic part of my paper was more about critical theory. And then when it came to, talking about Christian films specifically, I had to talk, I had to look up articles, whether they be from like reputable magazines or, uh, just like 
established blogs. You know, mm-hmm. I wound up uh, quoting uh, our friend Nate Fleming from Thimble Rigs Arc, who has written extensively uh, about Christian art uh, mm-hmm. over the last several years. And so, um, and the more I started writing this and the more research I did, the more excited I got hmm. about this, especially when I started digging into critical uh, critical theory about genre. Hmm. There's a guy named Thomas Schatz uh, who wrote a book called Hollywood Genres, and he delves into you know the various genres, some of which we've spoken about. But where I found most of the interesting stuff was in his introductory chapter, which admittedly was very long, hmm. but he talks about what a genre is, not merely iconographically, but also thematically and the role that the theme plays in dictating the artistic content. Yeah. And that, well, it's like, okay, theme dictating content, that is Christian film. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so in my paper, I talk a little bit, and we don't have to spend much time on this. I, ta- I, I wanted to talk about the history of Christian relationship to film. Uh, and that for a long time during the Hayes Code era where you had you know, uh, the Catholic church being heavily involved in the, uh, approval or disapproval of, of certain films, um, and their moral content and, and that sort of thing. Like the church felt that film was very safe. They felt that it was sort of their domain for the most part, because they knew that, you know, good guys will be rewarded. Bad guys will be punished. The church mm-hmm. will never be questioned. And yeah. we're not going to have to worry about nudity or violence or language everything's going to be fine. This is going to be very safe for us. Um, And incidentally, uh, I interviewed a few people um, for this. I asked if that was allowed uh, and it was. So I interviewed uh, Wade Williams, who I've spoken about on this show. And by the way, I I didn't say this, but I was a, I was a call in guest on his radio show. He does a show out of Orlando and you can actually find that at more than one lesson as well. Mm. Uh, I talk about Christian film. We, I did. I interviewed him and then he said, Hey, do you want to be a guest on my show tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, sure. So, and Wade's a great guy. I like him a lot. And so, um, and he's an actor, uh, on top of everything else. And he's acted in a number of Christian films and he has some very interesting things to say. Hmm. Uh, I re-interviewed Corbin Burnson. Um, and he had a lot of great things to say. And then I interviewed Dr. Ted bear, the founder of movie guide. And that was a very interesting interview as well. And his, and he, his opinion on like the relationship of the early of, of the church to early film was, was actually very helpful. Um, but then the Hayes code was sort of brushed aside and it became more about ratings and the MPAA and you had more violence being included, more, uh, sexuality and more language. And, suddenly the church felt that they didn't, certainly they didn't have as much influence as they used to, but also now the content is sort of contradicting what they view as acceptable for themselves, much less everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you, in the 1960s and seventies, you got a lot of like anti-establishment attitudes and the church is the establishment, whether it be Catholic or Protestant or whatever. Yeah. And so suddenly the clergy is no longer off limits like it used to be. Right. And so basically whether they meant to or not, Hollywood was um, communicating to the Christian, the American Christian community. That's like, okay, we're, we're kind of done with you. And in fact, we're a little bit hostile towards you. So, uh, so that was the initial break. Um, and 
and the two were just sort of at odds for a long time. And, you know, in the, but in the nineties you had in the eighties and nineties, you had, uh, you know, things like focus on the family and promise keepers and various other, um, Christian organizations that started to engage with culture a lot more. Um, not, but also in, in incorporating some media you had, like I grew up listening to adventures and odyssey, mm-hmm. yeah, which was a radio drama, uh, that dealt with social issues, but it also had like a fantasy element. It was for kids. And in retrospect, it was actually very well written with very well defined characters, but because it was a radio drama, you could define the characters more. Mm, sure. Um, and so, uh, so the idea of the church wanting to engage more actively with a culture that it is uh, not merely Hollywood, but the culture that it is starting to see as being opposed to them. Like mm-hmm. you had discussions of like, you know, abortion and gay rights and that sort of thing. Um, I think honestly with Reagan and then Bush senior in the white house, I think Christians saw that the culture was still very much on their side. And then you had Bill Clinton uh, being elected. And I combined with just larger attitudes of the nineties. And I think they saw that, okay, we're starting to be a little bit, not necessarily oppressed that would come later, but uh, I think uh, I'm detecting a hostility. So we need to try and, and kind of circle the wagons while also maybe challenging ourselves. So you you know, you had things like promise keepers, which mm-hmm. my dad was a part of, yeah. um, you know, where like men had to, wanted to like learn to be better husbands and fathers and that sort of thing. So, um, so the idea of, of the church being actively culturally engaged, that's nothing necessarily new, but like issue driven, Mm -hmm. um, that's, that really came about in the, in the nineties. Um, and so, uh, and then there are, you know, maybe because, uh, the millennium was about to end. Um, there were a lot of end times movies like, uh, the Omega code and the left behind series. Yeah. I wonder if that was specifically the impetus for those, but yeah, cause those were very popular in the nineties. Those, those, yes. uh, left behind books were. Yeah. And yeah. And that itself was just probably a similar, you know, that those books themselves were a similar attempt to capture a culture that was moving away from mainstream Christianity. Yeah. And I read a number of the books and they're very easy reads. Um, and I think with stuff like the Omega code, I think, um, like the Christian film community, which was still kind of like cloud 10 pictures and stuff. Um, I think they also saw the opportunity. It's like, well, these are kind of action movies and these are sort of sci-fi movies. And that's Mm -hmm. really big right now. Let's try to emulate Hollywood blockbusters. Now they didn't have the budget to do that. But you know, if you look at the Omega code, as opposed to fireproof, I mean, it's night and day as far as what they're trying to accomplish. Right. Yeah. So when I talk about Christian, when I talk about Christian film as a genre, I didn't want to say Christian film because there are different types, which is why I wanted to focus in on what, again, what I call Christian social drama, which is, is actually very specific. Um, you know, movies like the Omega code are basically like dystopian future or sci-fi movies with a Christian bend. Right. They're, they're just an attempt to take an existing type of Hollywood movie and turn it Christian. Right. So, and those movies didn't do super well at the box office. They still made them, but there was no expectation they would do even left behind, which was really pushed. Yeah. Um, in churches because it was, you know, based on the, the books, I looked it up that it got a theatrical release. It did almost no money in theaters. It did okay on, in DVD sales and stuff, but just again, compared to what Christian movies do now, yeah, 
nothing. Well, and it's a lot of it is because of that genre thing, because it, in making something like the Omega code, they're trying to say, okay, people like action movies. Let's do one of yeah. those, but there's enough other action movies out there that are done with bigger budgets and probably better. So if people have the choice to watch some kind of drama or some kind of action movie, and they're not going specifically to see something that espouses Christian values, then right. what's the point of going to the one that's cheaper and worse? And that's the thing is when it comes right down to it, you know, Christians we know now that are suspicious of, of Hollywood and the Hollywood worldviews, even they would go see superhero movies right? But because that's safe. Exactly. But they're probably not going to see the movies that are the bigger dramas like yeah, nocturnal animals and yeah. uh, that kind of thing. No one's beaten down the door to make it to uh, 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 revolution. No, what was it? Revolutionary road. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, came out the same year as fireproof by yeah. the way. Um, yeah, th exactly. Um, and so it's like, oh, we've got our own version of Independence Day. It's like, well, we already saw Independence Day. Yeah, we've Day, got and Independence you're not, Day. We don't need it. Yeah, you're not going to compete with that. Uh, right. And so, um, but then, and so I, I think the Christian demographic was not really paid attention to until Passion of the Christ. Um, which again, that's a period film, but also it's, this is Mel Gibson, a major movie star, an Oscar winning yeah. director making a movie and like there was such a push, um, yeah, people in churches to to see it. Oh yeah, and I, I there was a a quote from your paper where, um, <laughs> there there were several quote quotes that I found very interesting and very helpful to the paper, but show a little bit of a uh, disconnect with definitely the world of Christian audiences, and. Um, one of these said something like, well, this was the first time that we, the, the reason this movie was so successful was because uh, there was such a big push in churches and things like that. And I think, no, that's not true at all. The reason this is so, so successful is because it was this type of movie done with a major star and with a big budget. That doesn't happen. And there is such, I mean, it is, it's a, a little bit shameless how much Christians are excited when oh. a major star or director identifies as a Christian. They're thrilled. Yeah. They're thrilled. They, they all know the list. <laughs> oh, no question. Yeah. I mean, I know it. And, and admittedly, like I fall prey to that as well. When I find out that, you know, Scott Derrickson, director of the very popular, um, Dr. Strange, but also one of the preeminent voices in horror of the last 10 years is a Christian that went to Biola, you know, and, and a practicing one like that to me now, in my case, it's like a director of good movies is a Christian. Like he's demanding quality of himself mm -hmm. and he believes these things. That's something I get excited about no matter what. But, um, but yeah, so I fall prey to it as well. And yeah, this is Mel Gibson making something that we can take seriously. So like it made tons of money. Uh, but then elsewhere to kind of speed things along, uh, elsewhere you had Tyler Perry making movies based on his plays and the plays were geared towards, uh, the African-American community and they were very popular. Uh, and then he decided to adapt them into movies, which made a lot of money. And he came to just kind of out of nowhere. And he himself, I think he identifies as a Christian and he incorporated a lot of his faith into his films and he his movies and plays dealt with a lot of the issues specific to the African, like social issues specific to the African, African American community. So yeah. in many ways, his films could be considered part of Christian social drama, but I think there are enough, enough things to separate. Like he 
was he wasn't playing to the larger evangelical audience. He was playing to a, a an African American audience and not even an African American Christian audience. Mm-hmm. He was playing to just you know just a, a black audience, certainly with his plays, and then that was the audience that embraced his films. So it was a pre-existing audience and he was playing to that. And then also his major recurring character, which was Medea, who is often the source of wisdom by his own admission is not a Christian. And that's mm-hmm. something that you will not find in Christian social drama. Yeah. Like the, the mentor, the, the wise sage has to be a Christian. It always has to be a Christian telling somebody who's either not a Christian or somebody who's wavering in their faith, yeah. whether it be like the father from fireproof or, um, uh, the, uh, who's the, it's, it's like one of the other cops in courageous, right? Yeah. And then the older woman in war room, yeah. um, you know, the pastor and God's not dead, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. And, and then I think there's another father and God's he, not dead too. Well, there's a father in, uh, do you believe in, in God's not dead? A lot of it is the, is the other, like the African pastor. Yeah. There's yeah. that too. And so, so now we're kind of getting into, uh, the specifics of the, the Christian social drama as a genre. And so, uh, and I'm not even really sure where to start except to just kind of go in the order of my paper. So, um, uh, I think it really starts in earnest in 2008 with fireproof Mm -hmm. because Alex Kendrick, it was his third film. He made flywheel with, which didn't make really any money, but it got attention Mm -hmm. like local attention in the South. Enough that, and, and that's the thing, between Flywheel and then Facing the Giants, you had Passion of the Christ and you had Tyler Perry films. So like right. films that had a religious quality to them were making money. Enough for and studios so, to take notice. And so then you had uh, Affirm Films taking his his football movie, Facing the Giants, and distributing it, distributing it in 441 theaters, which is a lot you know, uh, much larger considering that flywheel played in, I think two theaters locally. <laughs> um, and it, and facing the giants made $10 million, you know, like a lot of money, that's a lot of money. And that got people's attention. And so when fireproof came out and it got Kirk Cameron involved, well, it's not Mel Gibson, but it's a name. And that movie was made for, I think $500,000 and it made, I don't have it in front of me, but like $30 million. Yeah. Maybe, I think more. Um, and that, everyone's like, that. Like, that's astounding to me. I can't even, I can't figure out what the percentage is there. But that's, I mean, Hollywood wishes it could do something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. You know, like any movie in Hollywood that makes $100, 200000000 million usually has a budget of 50, 50. to 100. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so suddenly Hollywood is taking this seriously and film and Christian film goers see that, see, this is like, Oh, this is something for us. And the nature of fireproof, I said it at the time is that like, this is a movie for grownups. Now I don't think it handles the issues in a grown up way, mm-hmm. but it's a movie about a marriage. It's grown up issues. Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not something either general enough that it can be family audiences yeah. or uh, specifically geared towards children like an adventures and odyssey would have been exactly and it's and it deals with honestly like it's almost like promise keepers the movie <laughs> kind of yeah you know and so like it's it's 
picking up certain things like from the nineties, as far as Christian culture and the way it was engaging with larger culture and with itself and using film to address that, uh, and then making money as a result. And, and the formula starts to be set in, starts to really be set in stone, uh, with that you have, um, a character converting, you have images like a cross, you have, um, a very specific type of arc, and then you have something, and I'm going to, I'm going to be bouncing to something else. Now you have something that I only, only in thinking about this, did I come to this, uh, what I, I was struggling for a term, as you know, for a long time. And I settled <laughs> on, I'm still not super happy with it. I settled on what I call the emblem. Every major Christian social drama of the last eight years. And when I say major, what I mean to say is a movie that made over $10 million has what I call the emblem. It is a visualization of faith or a visualization of, uh, the, the, the come to faith, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in the case of fireproof, it is the love dare in the case of courageous it is the the resolution that the that the fathers sign. In the case of war room, it is the prayer closet. Now, admittedly, that's not a thing you can carry around with you, but it is a it is a physical thing. Uh, in the case of God's not dead, it's a little bit different. It's the contract, uh, the the thing you have to sign that says God is dead, and that that spurs uh, the characters on. In uh, do you believe? It's these little wooden crosses that the characters have to carry around. I don't think there's one in God's Not Dead 2. Nothing that I can really recall. Isn't there something that all the the pastors are That's that's like a, a requirement that they have to hand over their sermons for yeah. review or something like that. Um but yeah, I can't but nothing that like the characters that every character is like responding to or that the lead character is responding to. So there is there but there's an argument of like the exception that proves the rule um, because then in something like uh, miracles from heaven, there's a little butterfly that is a symbol of God intervening. Mm -hmm. There's not one overtly in heaven is for real, but the reason why I'll get to in a moment, the, the re the reason that I put forth the, the, the necessity of the emblem is that we are dealing, and this is something that I, that as a Christian, I'm reluctant to say, cause I don't want it to sound like I'm being overly critical of the nature of faith, but we are dealing in invisible things. And just as it can be very difficult for a film to adequately capture the essence of love, cause love is such an ethereal feeling. And like, it's hard to really capture that you really need actors to do the heavy lifting there and a solid script, but the idea of God, which you cannot see, but you have to believe he's actively working without seeming too much like a deus ex machina, you know, you have to have characters reacting to prompts that are invisible. And so what can we do? Well, we can't, ha we don't want to have the Bible because that's too obvious. Yeah. So we have these other things, uh, you know, the, character in fireproof is reading this book that his father wrote called the love dare. And that is the catalyst. That's the thing that drives him on. And so because you can't visualize God, cause this is supposed to take place in our reality where we can't literally see God. Um, 
we need something else that that the you know we need something that the camera can show instead of simply tell um in heaven is for real we do get a visualization of heaven and a visualization of jesus which means we don't need an emblem like it it actually is uh, hmm. an exception um we get visions of heaven so we don't need an emblem we've got a thing we can we can look at yeah. and see god yeah so it's just the idea of having something that something tangible that we can connect to yes. that can stand in for the uh the supernatural thing right and and they all they all have this except you know except god's not dead too but even then it's a sequel and and that's and so like the original had one and so that's kind of enough um and i'm pretty sure that in god's not dead too it's not a huge catalyst it's not like what it is in the first one but i believe yeah. there's a situation where like okay you like the aclu lawyer says like you need to sign this sure and i think she doesn't now it doesn't come back to that mm -hmm. but there is a moment of like you need to it's the same type yeah. of thing yeah so um so that is another element that you find in these films and it's not necessarily the same as as pure iconography because uh iconography in a western it's the same thing over and over again it's a sure. it's a cowboy hat it's a, a revolver whatever it is whereas this it's a different thing but it's one very tangible thing as you said that serves the same function in every film mm -hmm. um and then a couple other uh, a few other things um obviously these films can't have a certain type of content it can't have language it can't uh, profanity it can't have any kind of sexuality it yeah. might be able to have some kind of violence but certainly not gory violence or anything like that unless it's the passion of the christ and maybe hacksaw ridge <laughs> um but uh and so that's where you know external forces like the dove foundation comes in and movie guide comes in mm -hmm. uh which is and so it's weird the the christian film industry has come to sort of embrace its own haze code it sort of yeah. took that up again like in yeah. the old days um you know like a movie had to have like the the official badge of approval that says like we right. have inspected this it doesn't have any offensive content so it has this badge yeah to let movie theaters and moviegoers know this is okay. It, it serves essentially the same purpose as a brand name does yes. with, uh, with any kind of product is, you know, like when you buy Campbell's soup, you know, Campbell's soup has been around for a hundred years or yes. whatever. And you expect a certain thing from that and you right. know, you can trust it. And it's the exact same thing here. People, anyone can make a film really. And anyone can say it's a Christian film. So they need to have an outside source like the dove foundation to tell yeah. them this is endorsed by us. So you can trust it. Yeah. And there is the dove seal and yeah. there are enough Christian bookstores and stuff that won't carry any movie except for the passion of the Christ. Um, <laughs> that doesn't have the dove seal. Cause yeah. it's just like, it's a shorthand. I know I see that seal. I, it's like you said, it's a brand, right? I see the seal. I don't need to put any more thought into it. Cause somebody else already did. We're good. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, so these other forces are dictating what, you know, certain like characters are only ever going to be a certain type of person. These movies are never going to 100% mimic the reality we live in. Yeah. They're a version of reality mm -hmm. because even the most squeaky clean Christian is probably going to encounter profanity just in their everyday life. They mm -hmm. might not be the, might not be the ones that say it, but they'll encounter it. Um, and so, but we can't have anybody doing that, uh, saying these things in Christian films. So that's out. Uh, 
now obviously themes like these movies all have the same theme as uh as corbin bernson put it uh rather sarcastically um the overriding theme of these films is that if you accept christ everything will be hunky-dory mm-hmm. uh, that was his word hunky-dory yeah <laughs> um and that's about right um not merely spiritually like your life has to work out mm-hmm. um which then again, the theme dictates an artistic choice. And it's something you and I have talked about in the past, um, which is the, the, the extended, uh, denouement, yeah. which I think you find most overtly in war room where With the, yeah, where there's an extended, where the conflict the is over sequence, right? The families together were good. And now let's watch this big jump rope yeah. competition. It seems like that should be a credit sequence. Like the movie's over. It does. You can keep going, but we don't need to see it. But, um, but a credit sequence implies this is officially over. And now mm-hmm. here's a little bonus. No, no, no. We need to see how happy these people are. Otherwise we not, we might not be convinced how beneficial Christianity is for our lives. Like this is not an afterthought. This is part of the story we are telling. Yeah. Um, another example, though, I don't consider saving Christmas to fit into this, but that is a film with an extended denouement. Oh my gosh. Like I think 30% of the film is it's denouement. Um, and then I think an argument could be made that, uh, the God's not dead has one as well with the newsboys concert. Yeah, definitely. Um, and even though there is a story element involved because it does cr- cut back and forth between the death of the, uh, a character, the conflict is basically the bigger over. conflict is over. And honestly, the, the fact that that guy gets hit by a car at all is, is dramatically kind of doesn't fit with the rest of it. So that right. that's more of a misstep that has to be made to work somehow. So let's, uh, let's dig into something else and you don't find it in all of these, but you find it in a lot of them. Um, which is the idea of, uh, opposition or oppression. Mm-hmm. You find these more in the God's not dead films. Do you yeah. believe? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we found it in something like Woodlawn, which because it's, I consider it more of a sports movie and it, and it kind of deals with those cliches. It's a sports movie that has Christian qualities to it. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily incorporate it into this genre. Um, but the idea of some, authority figure coming down hard on Christian characters and saying, you're not allowed to be this. That is absolutely a response to the cult, the current culture. Yeah. Um, and that means you need in certain films, you need a very tangible villain. You've got Kevin Sorbo, you've got Ray wise, you have, um, I don't remember who it is, but there is a char- There, there are characters in "Do You Believe" who say like, "Oh, this ambulance, uh, th- this paramedic, uh, like tried to convert a guy on his deathbed. Right? That's not allowed." Is it Let's- the wife of the guy who dies? Right. Who I think gets a lawyer involved. Yeah. Um, but again, the law. Right. The, yeah. Which is a sense of uh, essentially the government is getting involved. Right. It has this, to be a, you know. a stronger force. I mean, that, that's why it's a it's a professor to a student. That's right. why it's the lawyers to the yes. the government to these other people. And so that, you know, so again, like we need to show and there there needs to be a certain boldness to these films. These are movies that are trying to embolden their audience in their beliefs. And mm-hmm. so 
what, what better way to do that than to have them stand up, not for something, but against something, mm -hmm. against an oppressive uh, professor. So again, what the film is attempting to do with its themes uh, sort of necessitates certain types of characters. Yeah. And the characters are then defined by their oppression. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be pretty flat. That's yeah. another big thing. So, yeah. Uh, Which is why the... <laughs> The Ray Wise character is <laughs> yeah. mustache twirlingly silly in God's Not Dead 2. So um, I'm going to quote from uh, Thomas Schatz's uh, uh, Hollywood genres. Each genre's implicit, implicit system of values and beliefs, its ideology or worldview, determines its cast of characters, its problems, and the solutions to those problems. In fact, we might define film genres, particularly at the earlier stages of their development, as social problem-solving operations. They repeatedly confront ideological conflicts within a certain cultural community, suggesting various solutions through the actions of the main characters. Thus, each genre's problem-solving function affects its distinct formal and conceptual identity. And that exactly describes what we're talking about. That's I it. Mean, that's, these are people from a particular, made for and by a particular cultural group, and they are dealing with social problems, whether that be uh, oppression of your belief system or that be uh, all of the different day-to-day uh, -day human struggles that yeah. something like an Alex Kendrick one deals with. Yeah, it's, I mean, when I read that, I was like, <laughs> bingo. There's something I, I, I got to say, and this is not something I, I think very often, uh, to be honest with you. Um, there are times when I'm like analyzing a movie or I'm noticing a trend in films and I'm trying to think or speak more thoughtfully about it. And there are times I'm like, I am just shooting in the dark. Mm -hmm. I have no, you know, <laughs> and with this paper, I thought like, am I just off track? And then I read that and I thought I couldn't be more on track. <laughs> Um, I was, I felt very vindicated in that moment. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, another quote that I wrote down here is simply stated a genre film involves familiar, essentially one dimensional characters acting out a predictable story pattern within a familiar setting. Well, that does apply to any number of genres, but it definitely applies to this one as yeah, well. Definitely. So like, you know, this, this book of his Hollywood genres is very interesting and very helpful if you want to understand, uh, the it, but in a very plain spoken way, the critical attitude toward genre. I mean, this is, this is kind of, this is the sort of the first book you read, not because it's easy to read, but because it really boils things down into a very understandable way. And so, uh, if you're interested, check out Hollywood genres. It's a marvelous, uh, book. Uh, okay. Okay. A couple of quick things to get out of the way before we, uh, wrap up. Um, there is a little bit of iconography in these films that are similar, that's similar from one film to another. Uh, one is obviously crosses mm -hmm. and not just the little wooden crosses that you find in do you believe uh, those are emblems as well as icons, but genuinely just like a, a big wooden cross. Yeah, And it's a shorthand that everyone recognizes at this yeah. point, uh, whether you're Christian or not. So it ends up being kind of an easy thing for them to use. Yeah. In, fi in fireproof, the father walks Kirk Cameron out into the middle of the woods to like this little area that there's a large cross erected and like a bunch of tree stumps around it. Like it's a place that I don't know, like a Christian camp met or something like that. But it's just, he's having this conversation with his son in the shadow of this giant cross. And then in do you believe there's a big cross at the front of the sanctuary that the pastor comes and like paints red on, you know, to symbolize Christ's blood and stuff like that. So that one, obviously it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but then another one is uh, old churches. 
and not necessarily old as far as like oh they're old and rickety but a lot of the a lot of the churches in these films on the outside look very modern they look almost like a mega church but when you get into the sanctuary it's wooden pews it's stained glass windows mm-hmm. um and i think there's just maybe because for the audience first off it's it's a visual shorthand if you have a a church that looks like a movie theater might not register quite as much yeah. or quite as, as it might not be so resoundingly a Christian church. Uh, but when you have wooden pews and stained glass windows, we all know where we are. Yeah. And I think there's also an element of, of timelessness. Like yeah. in an ever changing world, you can walk into the sanctuary and it's the same as it ever looks was. Like it was in the 1500s. Um, and then as far as cinematography, you and I've talked about like a consistently roaming camera, which I think is a function of filmmakers getting more comfortable with the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also in pretty much all of these films, there will be one moment where the, you'll get a camera angle that is tilted downward towards the characters. Mm, the sort of the God view, the God view. Yeah. You know, it can't be, it's, it's objective. It's outside the action, but it can't be at eye level. Cause that's another person. This is from an angle that no person could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, one, so the last thing, and this is something that I hit on only in the last couple of days before I wrote my paper, um, and this again helped me uh, <coughs> sort of look at the larger view of how how critics, um, who are usually the ones to dismiss these films, how critics um, define genre both overtly and covertly. I was watching this old episode of Siskel and Eber back when it was called Sneak Previews in 1980. So Halloween had been made two years before. They both liked it, but it made so much money that it's like, all right, everybody, we got to start making new horror movies in which they started making what we now refer to as slasher movies. But we know what that is now. At the time, it was still developing, and so they called these women in danger movies, and they hated them. They thought they were bad for society. <laughs> they devoted a whole episode to them really, as a trend in, in horror that they thought was so disturbing, and it really bothered them that, so, that these movies made so much money and that there were enthusiastic audiences, and they thought like it was indicative of, of something bad in the audience, uh, like... You know, and as much as I agree with Siskel and Ebert, like in watching it in retrospect, you know, that's 36 years ago now, now that we know what a slasher movie is and we know that for the most part, it's pretty harmless. Like I don't, I may not enjoy them. Occasionally they, they can be really interesting, but you know, they have an audience. They have a big audience in the horror community. Definitely. And there's, they're absolutely a subgenre. Like they're very similar from one to the other, uh, iconographically. And, you know, at this point, you know, movies like behind the mask and scream really underscore like what these movies are. Sure. Um, so, but these, but Siskel and Ebert didn't realize it cause it was still early. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw an, a, they saw a disturbing trend. Yeah. Well, noticing a trend in an, in a number of movies that all look and feel the same. Well, that's, that's recognizing a genre before you declare it a genre. Yeah. And a lot of what they said reminded me of how critics now, including you and me sometimes, to be honest, uh, how we approach uh, Christian film as just like, these movies are just propaganda. And that's the thing you and I have said. And it's something actually I want to try and get away from is mm-hmm. des- describing these movies as propaganda. Yeah. Like tons of movies are propaganda. Yeah. It's, it's leading with your worldview. Well, According to Thomas Schatz, almost every genre leads with a worldview. Yeah. 
and so um so I did want to brief so I the last couple pages of my paper are actually devoted to this idea of why it is important to acknowledge these films as a genre. So I want to devote the last couple of minutes of this episode to that. Why do you think it is important that critics in general, audiences in general, although I think audiences when it comes to genres, audiences are often ahead of critics. Mm -hmm. They might not use the word genre, but like they know it when they see it. Yeah. Um, and they know that this is for us. Yeah. And so why is it important for critics and studios and whoever else academics to look at the movies we're talking about and say, this is a new genre. Mm -hmm. Why in your opinion, is it important for people to do that? Well, I think it is because then it, it, it changes the way that you look at it because you, you, your idea of the purpose of the film changes. Mm -hmm. Um, if the purpose of the film is just whatever your general idea is of the purpose of film, which, you know, can change for everybody, but there's uh there's probably a lot of things that we would share like entertainment or, mm -hmm. uh, uh, expressing some kind of truth or showing something beautiful or whatever. Um, <clears throat> so if, uh, if you realize that this, this film has a certain, has a different set of goals and then has a different set of criteria and, uh, is catered toward an audience that expects certain things, then, uh, you're able to forgive those things, which might have seemed odd if that, if that set of expectations wasn't set on, uh, right. uh, imposed on a film. Yeah. It's it, let's, let's go to slasher movies, you know, cause there are certain types of behavior, you know, the idea of splitting up mm -hmm. the idea of I'm going to explore the basement. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take a shower by myself. Right. Like, like I know there's a danger around. Yeah. So I'm going to explore a dark place alone. Right. You know, and, and it makes the audience say like, don't go in there now. We can be incredulous and say, why would anyone do that? Exactly. But what we're essentially saying is we wouldn't do that, but mm -hmm. we don't live in a slasher movie. Yeah. In a slasher movie, this behavior is the essence of it. And honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, a slasher movie requires people to be slashed, mm -hmm. which means people have to make bad decisions and put themselves in the position to be slashed. So literally the, the requirements of the genre force or just what the, what the essence of the genre forces these characters to act in a very specific way yeah. that might not be recognizable to you and I in our life. But then at the same time, the same it's could be necessary. said of film noir, right? It's necessary for the genre. And then in a similar way too, like slash films, uh, they have to have gore. That's what the audience expects. The audience is going to be upset if the film doesn't have gore in it. Yeah. The polar opposite is true of the, the Christian social yeah. dramas. It, it can't have quote unquote content in it. Cause that's not what these films are. And so it, if it might make, even if it might make more sense for characters to swear or something like that, that doesn't fit within this genre. Yeah. And, and it's something that, that gives me pause when I approach these, because I still, I think the genre is just not for me, but not every genre has to be for me. I don't, yeah, like, I don't like slasher, slasher movies. Yeah. Um, but at this, but I think we can still, you know, there are still good and bad examples of genre. Like there are good, there are, there are slasher movies that are better than other slasher movies. Um, and in that same way, I think we can still, when, you know, the next time you and I have to review a movie that is like this, that is doing well uh, financially, um, 
I think this will definitely inform how I approach it. And it's like, yes, it goes through this and this and this. So it definitely fits into the genre, but here's how it might be able to be a better version of that. Um, as opposed to simply say, why can't it be something else? Mm -hmm. Which is ultimately what I think I have been saying about these movies for a long time. And I'm not saying like a genre is not critic proof, but it's closer to critic proof than a non-genre movie. Yeah. Um, that being said, a lot of the problems that we have with these films come from uh, lower budgets or trying to do too much with a small budget really is, right. the, is the main key there or um, writing that isn't, that doesn't feel uh, uh, refined or, or um, right. really practiced and worked out. And, and those are problems in any genre, any film, whatever. Yeah. So that a lot of those issues that we have with it come from that. And as long as that continues to be a problem, we'll continue to make these lesser than what they could be. Once the genre is defined, it can actually be more, you, you can discover how malleable it is. Yeah, definitely. So in that same way, like, you know, there's a very specific type of stylized acting that one will find in film noir. But when you watch Chinatown or LA confidential, there's not a lot of stylized acting in that. It's no. fairly naturalistic, but they're still film noir. So yeah. in that same way, yes, we, you sort of need a pre a presentation of the gospel in these films and you need a character to eventually become a Christian and embrace these things. But there is a way to do that. But that doesn't mean that it has to feel artificial. It can mm -hmm. feel naturalistic and still fall into this genre yeah. and it can be relatable as a human. You know, there's a way to have characters not swear, but the, but the impetus that could cause somebody to swear in the midst of an argument, for example, can be there. Yeah. You know, if, if, if the filmmaker is being honest about what they're trying to do. So, I don't know. It's in talking about this and in writing about this, it really has, has helped me to look at these films and I'm genuinely excited to see the next one yeah. and see if it fits into what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I, I honestly think it will, cause there's no reason it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. These movies continue to do well with their intended audience and yeah. And, and so there's no reason to change. There's only more reason to keep doing these this way. Uh, just to, and and lest anybody think that that is an inherent negative. That's how horror movies started. That's how westerns started. That's how film noir started. Any genre that is now so well respected started with studios and filmmakers doing the same thing over and over because that's what audiences want. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, I'm gonna try and do something with this paper. Uh, I'm not sure what. I don't think I'm gonna publish it on more than one lesson. I think I'm gonna try and do something bigger with it than that. Um, so battleship pretension, obviously, yeah, of course. um, but, uh, but I wanted to talk about, uh, this just because I was excited about it and I thought the listeners might enjoy it, but we have uh, a hard out now, so we've got to get going. Um, uh, thank you everybody for, uh, listening. You can comment on this at more than one lesson.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons. You can follow Josh at the Josh long at the Josh long. Uh, and I think that's it. Thank you everybody for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.